I'm going to begin with a, a bit of a confession here this morning. I don't quite know exactly where my mind has been. I like to pride myself on thinking that I plan well enough ahead of time. And, and in the sermon series that I had put together for Ebenezer, I had planned well ahead of time. And so when I came in this morning and we were together for prayer and was with the choir, uh, George, Pastor, Pastor George said in this first Sunday of Advent, and I said, no, I don't think that's till next Sunday. And the choir was very quick to uh, correct my mistake and remind me that, yes, this is the first Sunday of Advent, which has created a bit of... Uh, so, I, well, at first, I probably should say, <clears throat> okay, choir, you're right. I was wrong. Please forgive me. I will try not to do that again. This is a recording. Uh, you know, those are, are, are important words to keep in mind uh, in marriage and in all other areas of life as well, to be able to say that. So it, it actually kind of spun me off on a bit of a, of a crisis here now in our worship time. First, uh, there is that thought, I only have how many more days of shopping before Christmas? Oh, goodness. You know? uh, and the second is, oh, okay, I had planned this, ser- this sermon not as an Advent sermon. And yet there are some Advent themes in here that I would ask you to share with me. And that has to do something with being caught unawares. Now, as we've been making our way through these select biographies of the Old Testament lives on our journey to Advent, which we have arrived at this, this morning, uh, we're going to arrive at, at, at a very warm and yet a very surprisingly critical moment in the history of God's people. And while that moment belongs to the whole nation of Israel, the focus really centers upon one very simple man who you may not have heard a whole lot about. His name was Ezra. And I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles uh, uh, to the book that really bears his name. It is the book of Ezra. It comes right after the book of Second Chronicles and right before the book of Nehemiah. Now, <clears throat> Even though the book is named after him, he really does not appear in that book until somewhere more than halfway through. And even then, when he arrives, he comes with a very humble introduction. In Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, he finally steps to the scene in the book named after him. And, And there we find Ezra introduced in this way. He was a man who had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. As I said, that's a little over halfway through the book, which is only only 10 chapters long. And and, and up to chapter 7, what we really have is a historical context, a record of Israel's historic return to the land from the 70 years of exile in Babylon a return to the land that was ordered by the king of Persia. And and you would think that if you were to find a leader to, to, to stand at the front of that return, he would have more than a resume which says he's a student of the Bible. He's, he's a Bible study leader. You would expect a little bit more of a person to lead a political nation movement and build than just that simple phrase. I mean, that's nice. So he studied the Bible and, 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 he, and he studied how to teach the Bible. But, but what does he know about management and leadership? Does he have any experience as a commander-in-chief or, or a CEO? 
Is that it? Is, is what we have here all that's there? He has a heart set to study the law of the Lord and to practice it. That's all we really know about him. And you might be tempted to read that and then wonder to yourself, what on earth could he possibly contribute to the restoration, the historic restoration of a whole nation and the rebuilding of a sovereign state? At least that's the question that carried me into this study of this very simple man called Ezra. And it's a question that really roused my curiosity. What is it about Ezra that God would choose him for such a critical role of leadership? What is it about the dynamics of a whole and a healthy community that would demand the presence of such a man in order to keep it whole and to keep it healthy? I would suggest that such questions are particularly relevant when I wonder about what it is required of me to live a life of godly impact and for us to live a life of effective and healthy community, especially as a fellowship and a church, to be a member of a church, to be a parent of a family, to be a person of influence at work, to establish a healthy society. What capacity is it that would cause God to raise up someone like Ezra whose resume would simply read this way, I have a heart set to study the word of God and put it into practice. (laughs) Well, in understanding this setting, I've discovered the uh, the answer to, uh, to take to my heart. So let me set the scene. And actually, the scene goes all the way back to 2 Chronicles, which closes with the fall of Jerusalem and and Israel as a nation then being carted off into exile, being driven into exile. And the story ended on a very surprising note. After 70 years of exile, God actually would raise up a new conquering emperor named Cyrus, king of Persia. And who would, as we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 22, fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by the prophet Jeremiah that the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout the realm and put it in writing saying this, The Lord, the God of heaven, has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem, in Judea. Any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with him, Let them go. It's a royal decree to send the people out of their exile back to land and to do something very special, to rebuild their temple. Well, turn that page then from 2 Chronicles, and that's exactly where Ezra begins. It begins with that same proclamation. And with that proclamation, we read that the people took him up on the offer. Ezra chapter 1, verse 5. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build up the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. So the move was on with a mission in mind. And as you read on, you catch a sense of momentum behind that move. The Persians themselves were to donate support for that move. In verse 6, And all their neighbors assisted them with silver and gold and goods and livestock, valuable gifts, free will offerings. Even the king contributed to the effort, even this, this emperor. And, and we have the inventory of the treasures he sent listed in the first couple of chapters. Now you would think to yourself, 
that with all of that, Israel would be all set, good to go, ready to return home. They have everything they need. They have a mission. They have resources galore. And if you were to draw up a business plan for resetting your whole nation, your society, your fellowship, everything checks out. The problem is, however, we're talking about a people movement and not a business enterprise. And the fact is, in a people movement, the human factor makes management a challenge. Does it not? The human part of that equation kind of sets things sideways. And so reading through the first six chapters of Ezra, they may be a little bit confusing to you simply because the record of that return is a bit fuzzy at best. It didn't happen quite as planned. In fact, the people kind of dribbled their way back to Jerusalem in bits and pieces. Now, historians debate about how many organized expeditions were part of that return to the, to the, to the land of Israel. In Ezra, we have a record of at least two expeditions. The first six chapters of Ezra record that first attempt, that first expedition. It happened right after the decree was given and was actually very disappointing from the start. Out of a total Jewish population of between 2 and 3 million people, only less than 50,000 chose to take up the offer and, and head back to the land. Out of 2 to 3 million, 50,000. Actually, if you want to be accurate, if you were to add up the numbers that are recorded in Ezra, it comes out to 49,897 people joined up and began the march of a return. And they had left the relative comfort of their life in Persia to endure a 900-mile trek and then face the hardship of rebuilding a destroyed temple and country and city. They were led by a good leader, a a guy named Zerubbabel, and he was fueled by good intentions to restore the temple. Uh, Again, to be accurate, they did lay out the foundation for the temple in 536 B.C., but at that point, the human factor came into play, and they got distracted, a distraction that would require a word from a God-sent prophet. Now, I'm, I'm kind of curious, seeing if you're staying with me, uh, how many of you remember me preaching here for the very first time in January of 2014? Do you remember that at all? Do you remember what I pre- preached about? Anybody? Boy, I'm really making an impact here, aren't I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're uh, yeah, I remember you coming. Uh, my first sermon was on the prophet Haggai. There was two sermons on that, Haggai 1, Haggai 2. There's only two chapters to the book. How many of you remember them? Good. I wish I had a gold star I could give you. (laughs) Uh, But in that little book of Haggai, that's the prophet God chose for this particular moment. And in those two chapters, Haggai was sent directly. And if you put your finger in Ezra 7 and turn to Haggai chapter 1, there you will find that after 18 years had gone by, when that first expedition had finally arrived in Jerusalem, 18 years had gone by, the foundation of of the temple had been kind of laid out, but nothing else had been done. In 18 years, nothing had been done. And so that God sent a prophet, Haggai, with a message. 
Haggai chapter 1, verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Now, it's not hard to get the picture. The human factor had come into play. The people had started to get ready, but then began to ask the question that most of us begin to ask when it comes to our lives. What's the rush? What, is there a worldwide shortage of temples out there? You know, not not to worry, the foundation's here. We'll get around to it eventually, sometime, you know, when I get time to do it. And looking around, the prophet Haggai says, okay, if you haven't had time for the temple, what have you had time for? In verse 3, it says, is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains? You see, they had gotten distracted, and you get an idea of what they had been doing in the 18 years they had been working on their own homes. <laughs> I love the picture that is, that is painted by the prophet. They've been building homes with wood paneling. How 1970s. Can you just picture it? The wood paneling's there, shag carpeting maybe, you know, a fireplace, a lazy boy. It's taken them 18 years to... Do, to invent the lazy boy, and, 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 and maybe they have a big scroll TV up there. You know, you know, okay. They had lost their focus. And the primary message of the prophet was repeated five times in just the two chapters of, of Haggai. Uh, and they were, consider your ways, consider your ways, consider your ways, consider your ways, consider your ways. Focus, 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 focus. But they had lost their focus. And the primary message of the prophet, repeated five times in just those two chapters, was a wake-up call. When I was just a new fresh faith pastor in the 1980s, I came across a phrase in an interview with Gene Peterson of Regent that I really took to heart. In reflecting on the challenge of pastoral ministry and leadership and planning and directing successful ministry for a church, He referred to a line from a poem about a dog going along a road with haphazard intention as a way to describe the movement of a church. Haphazardly intent. And those two words kind of captured my imagination. Haphazard intention, not just for a church as the human factor comes into play, but my own life. As my own life begins to play out. It's haphazardly intent. What a way to to describe the journey of life and our journey of fellowship. I have no idea what poem he was referring to, but I can easily imagine the picture of that poem, of a dog going along a road. Just picture it yourself. It's dinner time, and a master calls out or blows a whistle, calling the dog home for dinner. The dog knows it's going to be dinner. And the journey that the dog is going to take goes from point A to point B, home. But for the dog, the journey does not run in a straight line, does it? There's a cat over there that needs a bark. There's a tree over there that deserves a sniff, and there's a hydrant over there that, well, you, you get the idea. And, oh, look, there's a squirrel. You know, eventually the dog will come home and the intentions are fulfilled, but the journey between A and B is haphazard along the way. It's intent, but it's haphazard. What a great way to describe the journey of our lives. What a way to describe the journey of our fellowship. God has called us and we fully intend to get right at it, but the line doesn't always go from A to B without a 
whole set of fuzzy zigzags all along the way. You know it. I know it. And God knows it too. Which is why he persistently and patiently prompts us to stay the course. Back to Ezra. How does God prompt his people to stay the course? He does it with a simple, simple man named Ezra, fulfilling a prophecy from a prophet like Haggai. He does it through a man like Ezra, and on your sermon outline, I've named Ezra as Israel's focus factor. A significant time, a period of time passes between chapters 1 and chapter 7 in the book of Ezra. 86 years to be exact, by the way. And it's time now for the second wave of people to return. Why? Well, there may have been a number of reasons, but in the eyes of God, only one really required Ezra to step up to the plate. And there are three things about Ezra that give us a clue as to what it was. I don't want to make too much of it, but his name is his, his, his name is the first of those factors. His name is Ezra, which in the Hebrew literally means a servant helper, or better yet, because of the uh ending, God's servant and helper. I think that's, 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 that's remarkable to note, because he was not named with the name of a king. He wasn't called Caesar. He wasn't called emperor. He... he He was called helper, one whose life was lived to empower others. And the second was his style. Ezra, more than any other Old Testament character, uses a very unique phrase to describe the guiding force in his life, his guiding philosophy. In chapter 7, verse 8, you hear it expressed for the first time, because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage. In chapter 8, verse 18, because the good hand of our God is upon us. In chapter 8, verse 22, the good hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. It was a theme out of Ezra that that resonates time and time again. He He could actually see the hand of the Lord on him, guiding his life. The hand of the Lord is, as we have in those verses, on me, on us, on everyone. And what qualified Ezra for this critical moment was not only a servant heart, being God's helper, but a sensitive heart, an ability to be able to see God at work in all things, and his hand holding all things together. I yearn for that in my own life, that sensitivity. There's a third clue and one that points directly to the critical assignment that God had in mind, and that was his specialty. He's he's introduced in chapter 7, verse 10, Ezra being identified as a man devoted to the study and the observance of the law of God and to the teaching of it to Israel. And that repetition is is a repetition of verse 6, where we read that Ezra was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God, uh, God of Israel, had given him. Now, you put those three things that we know of Ezra together, his name, his style, and his specialty, and you have a man who is grounded in a profound relationship with God and even more is capable to ground others into that same sort of relationship. 
And for a people who had proven themselves to be haphazard in fulfilling God's intentions, it's as if Ezra had, is, is being sent by God to be the critical instrument to focus God's people on who and what matters most. If I were to play on that term instrument in God's hands, instrument, it would be as if God selected Ezra to serve as a lens to sharpen the focus and the vision of God's people so that they could see God and they could see God's hand with as much clarity as he did. You want to be instrumental in the lives of others? You want to have an impact in your home and in your community, in your fellowship? Pay attention to Ezra. I like the way Ken Boa has put it in saying that the first wave of settlers may have been sent by God to rebuild a temple, but Ezra was sent by God with a mission to rebuild the people. And that's what matters most. And you may wonder to yourself, how is it done? And the simple answer to that can be found in one very brilliant moment. And to find that, you need to jump ahead into the book of Nehemiah in chapter 8, verse 8. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the history of Israel's return is a bit disconnected. But 13 years after Ezra had arrived on the scene and had had invested his time in the teaching of the people, and 94 years after the first wave of return, Nehemiah now shows up with a third wave and joins Ezra. The short story is that together... The two of them, Nehemiah and Ezra, completed the first mission, the job of rebuilding the temple and the city walls. And that is completed, and as it is completed, in chapter 8, a platform is then set for Ezra to complete the second and most important mission, the mission of rebuilding God's people. So turning to Nehemiah chapter 8, once the walls were built, verse 1, we read that all of the people assembled as one in the square, while Ezra the scribe brought out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. You almost picture this scene. In verse 4, he stood up on the high wooden platform built for the occasion. In verse 5, Ezra opened the book. In verse 6, he praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded by saying, Amen, Amen. They said it twice. And then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord, their faces on the ground. Can you just picture that scene? Compare that with the way in which we prepare to open the Word of God together. Scripture reading for the day is, Amen, amen, eyes eyes down to worship the Lord. And then in verse 8, with the scribes, Ezra read from the book, from the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being said. Would it be fair to conclude that God's word is the instrument by which all of us find our lives built and rebuilt and our fellowship grounded and focused? Would, you, would that be fair to say the word of God serves that purpose? We read in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 32, that 
The Word of God is like, a, like fire and like a hammer that breaks a rock into pieces. In Romans, we read in chapter 1, verse 16, that the Word of God is, is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that it is the Word of God which is alive and which is active and sharper than any double-edged sword and is capable of penetrating even to the dividing of our soul and spirit and our joints and our marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. It is in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 that we read it as the Word of God, which is inspired by God and useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the people of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Word has that power. And when skillfully employed by servants like Ezra, who know that God's hand is on their life and and, and can see it and have set their hearts then to take the word of God to heart, that lives begin to change, communities are saved, and fellowship finds its focus. But with such power, the word of God must be handled with care. And in this very brief verse, I have discovered in Ezra through his life and his example, the three absolute principles that have guided me every time I open the scriptures, whether to prepare a sermon or to take it to heart for personal devotion. And these principles are such. The first is accuracy. Accuracy. You need to allow the Bible to, to, to speak with utter accuracy. I, if you didn't know better, you would think that verse 8 begins with a stutter. They read from the book, from the law of God. In the Hebrew, repetition is a way of underscoring the essence of an object. When the cherubim, when the seraphim circle the throne of God in Isaiah, they use repetition and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The repetition only serves to remove all doubts about who God is. God is holy. And when repetition appears here, we begin our reading the Bible knowing that it is not just some book may be found on the help section of the library. It is not just some book, but it is in fact the Word of God. They read from the book, The Word of God. And in my reading, we, we, we do well to study it with a profound spirit of sincerity and trust. Some may wonder why, <laughs> some of my students at the seminary still wonder why we we have to study Hebrew and Greek in seminary. Why we offer uh, uh, classes in textual studies and hermeneutics. Uh, we do so so that it might be handled accurately. God's people set their hearts on the study of his word. Be accurate, rule number one. Rule number two, be clear. They read from the book, from the law of God, making it clear. Do you see that? Making it clear. Accuracy is one thing, clarity is another. And a good student of the Word studies well to fully understand what is being read. How many times have you ever heard someone explain a verse or a passage leaving you to, to, to scratch your head and wonder? I, I did that with you not too long ago when I, I shared my current life verse that it is better to be a live dog than a dead lion. Ecclesiastes chapter 9.4, my life verse. How many of you remember me talking about that verse? Yeah? Okay, good. Then I've achieved the concept of clarity on it. Some nod your head, but 
when I first read it and thought to yourself, hmm, but get real, without some explanation, there's no clarity. It just is something read. So there must be accuracy, there must be clarity. And then the third, practicality. Having made it clear, we read, they gave the meaning so that the people could understand. Understand. Hmm. I like the way the Living Bible paraphrases what we read in the New Testament book of James. Remember, it is a message to obey, not just to listen. If anyone keeps looking steadily into God's law, he will not only remember it, but he will do what it says, and God will greatly bless him in everything he does. The key step between the Bible and life is a matter of practical application. And that's where the truth of Scripture moves beyond a statement of facts or principles and becomes part of the fabric of your life. It's how God penetrates your world and makes a difference. So the question is, what are you doing with such a treasure that we have in hand and open before us? But even more than that, the real question is, what would this treasure do with you? In awakening you to all that God has intended for you and your life. Earlier, I likened Ezra to a lens God uses to bring focus to his people. I can't help but think that with his heart set on God's word, God would polish his life to become like a fine optic. And when he came to God's people, through him, they too could be able to see God up close and personal. And it just took one man to make what was distant through that lens up close and personal. And God continues to do that with each and every one of us and through us. And with that, maybe we then can fulfill the invitation of Scripture to magnify the Lord and then do it together and thus exalt his name forever. I began with a confession and an apology, saying I had been caught unawares this morning. I do not want to be caught unawares ever again to the grace of God. Neither do you.